with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders. This is a new podcast series by This Week Community News that's all about Central Ohio's military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week and custodian of ThisWeekNews.com. Let's get right to it. Our guest today is a U.S. Army veteran who took part in the Iraq War in 2003 and 2004 as part of the 660th Transportation Company from Zanesville. A landmine explosion in April 2004 injured his ankles and face, sending him back to the States for a stay at Walter Reed. He's a Purple Heart recipient who now lives in Powell, Ohio. Jason Goldsmith, welcome to Marching Orders. Thank you for having me. Let's get to know you a little bit. Just tell me a little bit about yourself, your family, uh, what you do. Yep. Uh, as you mentioned, I live in Powell. Uh, we moved back to Ohio from Chicago in 14. Uh, originally from Ohio, from the Zanesville area. I, I moved to Chicago in 2009 to follow my now wife. She was uh, working, going to school up there. So lived downtown. We were having a great time in a condo. Then we had a, you know, had a, had a baby and things changed pretty rapidly. So that 1200 square foot condo, it pretty much felt like 200 square feet. So put it for sale. Sold a lot faster than I anticipated. We were uh, almost homeless, essentially, for two months trying to find a house back here. But I uh, made it work and live in Powell, and it's, it's been awesome. So as far as uh, employment, I just started my own business. I work for a, a company called Ascend Advisory. I'm a financial advisor there, independent financial advisor. Been in the financial services for about pretty much the day after I got out of the military with uh, you know some time in between as a break for school. But... I really enjoy helping people with their retirement. That's kind of one of my, one of my goals. Uh, I love to help people. Uh, have a wonderful wife who supports me and, and two great, great, beautiful boys now. i got one that's five, or he'll be five in December, then one that just turned two. So busy, busy time for me. So uh, did uh, you sweep Mindy off her feet, or did Mindy sweep you off yours? <sighs> It's kind of funny how we met. We went to the same high school. We're from Philo High School, which is not a big school. Uh, she was a couple grades ahead of me. Her brother was my good friend. He was actually getting shipped off. So I came home from Columbus. She came home from Chicago. And we were both in the wedding, and we got paired up. So we kind of reintroduced to ourselves in the wedding. And you know how weddings are. I mean, have a few drinks and go out afterwards, and we just hit it off. We clicked. So did a year of kind of traveling back and forth, you know, kept Southwest, you know, in business. Uh, but I finally pulled the trigger and moved in, in 2009. So I haven't looked back. And you went to college at DePaul. Was that right after high school? No, I originally started at Ohio State in 2000, you know, right out of high school in 99. Didn't do as well as I wanted to academically, so that's when I joined the military. Uh, I went to DePaul in 2010. <laughs> Uh, and with a got a degree in finance there, so graduated in 2013. So, what did prompt you into going into the military? Was it mostly the grades, or was it something else? There's always been, I guess, my family's always served. Uh, I don't know if I'm fourth or fifth generation, but we've always, you know, served. That's what we've always done. So, I knew it was going to happen at some point in time. I just, I wanted to do school first, then going afterwards. But just the way things kind of shook out, it made sense to just go at that age of you know, 19 so and your father was in he served in vietnam yep he was in vietnam so and you joined in 2000 
2000. Yes, sir. It was peacetime. Nothing was going on. thought it was going to be just an easy six years. <laughs> yeah, you ended up in the 660th Transportation Company in Zanesville. Tell me a little bit about the 660th. What was its role in Zanesville? Yeah, so they were, uh, we were a transportation unit, so our, our job was essentially to, to haul materials, you know, to and from you know different different zones so i was never in the i never drove a truck per se my job was to provide security for the convoys in iraq and that's kind of where i got banged up but when you're when you're 20 21 you're kind of naive and when you go to combat you're like well, when things go sideways i want the biggest weapon system you know ability to throw rounds down range you don't think that well the iraqis are going to take those people out first so it's just you don't have that thought process at that age, but ultimately that's kind of what you know where I placed myself, and that's why I was blown up, you know, in in, in April. Was it was it a pretty close knit group, the six sixtieth? Did you know a lot of the guys already? Yeah, a lot of us, you know, were from the area. They did bring some other guys in from other areas prior to deployment, but yeah, we were definitely a tight knit family. Then obviously, once you you know serve in that type of environment, the the camaraderie enhances. So. And, of course, the next year was 9-11. Can you remember where you were on 9-11? Yep, I remember to the day. I was actually uh, back home. I was working with a – I was a block tender, believe it or not. So I was – I heard the news, and I think I – I carried enough blocks for like two basements that day. I was just so motivated, so upset, so just I couldn't believe that we were, you know, sucker punched, you know, like that. So definitely remember that day. It was definitely a dark day. What were your next few days like as far as the 660th? We are on, you know, pins and needles. We knew it. at some point we would get that phone call. And I remember I was actually at Easton when I actually got a page, I believe, that tells you how long ago it's been. But uh, And my squad leader was like his first words out of his mouth when I called him was, prepare to copy. And we were getting orders for deployment. So. so it's 2003. First phases of Afghanistan were still going on. Now we have Saddam Hussein to deal with. Were you still in the U.S. when the March 20 shock and awe campaign occurred? Yeah, we were still stateside uh, on March 20. I remember the news that we were we were so close to actually leaving. We were in Indiana pre-mobilizing, and, and then we got the word that he was captured. And I remember the, the family calling us, hey, you guys not going now, right? Everything's, you know, everything's good to go. But, you know, as you guys all know, we still went in, in the war. You know, we still, you know. We're over there as a presence. What were those conversations like stateside? Did you really think you would end up over there? Did you have a pretty good idea that you would? Or was it just sort of a, um, you know, it could happen? Did you really think you might have to go? Yeah, I guess when I initially joined, I not in the wildest dreams would I have thought that I would be deployed to a combat zone. And I mean, it did cross my mind, but it was just such a far off scenario. And we're nine years from Desert Storm, so you tend to take that current data and project it forward like it's going to happen forever uh, but yeah i know once 9 11 happened my thought process kind of changed i'm like okay now what's got to happen what do we got to do and so you start preparing for it uh then obviously we went you know got there late 03 early 04 and it, it was a you know crossing from kuwait which where we staged our equipment and and drove up out of it was one of the probably most nerve-wracking experiences because we don't know at that point as we cross that line, you know, are they going to welcome us? Are they going to shoot at us? You know, what's it going to be like? So it's a lot of anxiety around that. But it turned out, you know, for the most part, at that point, they were they were glad we were there. I recall a story in Stars and Stripes about the 660th, and all the soldiers recalled the words of a particular uh, non-commissioned officer. 
He said, um, trust me when I tell you we're not all coming back. Do you remember those words? Or even if not, did that concept sink into you? Yeah, I do remember the words. And I, I, I heard the words. I don't know if they sunk into the degree that the severity of what, I mean, he obviously had a different thought process than what I had going over there. I didn't know it would be the, the type of combat we'd be engaged in, but he obviously had more intel than I did. Um, you look back now and it's like, wow, that was spot on. Well, how, how do we miss those signals? But he, he, he knew that we were going to be engaged in a lot of things that traditional 88 mics didn't have to do in, in combat zones. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm with Jason Goldsmith. So you were actually in Haditha. That's part of the Al-Anbar province. And uh, Haditha, at the time, it was a center for insurgents activity. Even the local police, they had a heck of a time dealing with it. What was your experience like there? Yeah. So we were stationed in, in Balad, Anaconda, which is like a huge TSA uh, in our convoy that day i was injured near haditha so my experience there was not good that was my one only experience i was uh as we you know were pursuing our mission we were we were ambushed but the day started out pretty it was, there was a different feeling it was something eerie um and we'd done a lot of missions prior to that successfully with you know out a whole lot of contact but on this day it was april 9th or april 10th it was the same day that you know Matt Moppin and that convoy got, you know, in that trouble and ambushed by Biop, Biop Airport. So we actually had left. We had staged. They sent us back to the rear, then brought us back up because the roads were all basically we had orders that were black. No one's allowed to be out, you know, because everyone's being ambushed or being hit. So we end up getting called back and saying, that, hey, you know, you guys are responsible for hauling very sensitive, very important, you know, materials to towards Fallujah for that campaign. So you have to go. So we went and very calm through a lot of the towns that we went through that usually have, you know, people out there or families playing, nothing. So you kind of knew something was going to happen. Uh, so it was almost like a, a precursor to, you know, just that that incident. Yeah, it's my understanding a lot of the locals had actually fled already. Mm-hmm. And this was after March 31st. The uh, That was the whole Blackwater incident when Iraqi insurgents in Fallujah ambushed a whole convoy containing American private military contractors. Were you aware of, of any of that that had gone on at the time? Yeah, we we had heard a little bit about of it. And that's, you know, you're right in this time frame when this is the initial uprising of the insurgency uh, and obviously, we had led the charge into Fallujah, but there was a lot of stuff going on, and 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 that was yeah, we heard about that, and that was you know, when you hear about things like that, and how they're treating Americans, and how they're you know cheering in the streets, it it definitely you know brings out some emotion. So it's April 2004. It was the day you were injured. Can you describe that day, that morning? You did briefly, just the the quiet, the silence. When you woke up, was the day different? Just describe the day or your injury, how soon you were aware of what had happened. So it's interesting that you asked that because, like, the way I felt physically that day, and maybe emotionally or maybe psychologically, like, I I felt, like, drained. I had no energy. I didn't want to move. I was so unmotivated, which was so unlike me at that point in time. So it was almost like my body shutting down, prepping for some type of trauma that was about to happen. Uh, as we embarked on the mission, you know, it's usually you're on pins and needles and you're just scanning, scanning, scanning. And, and here I am, I'm trying to keep my eyes open. You know, it's like what you would think would be the opposite because of the adrenaline. But for some reason, my body was just wasn't responding. Uh, so as we're going down 
I guess it's called ASR, Alternate Supply Route Phoenix, from to Crete. We got kind of rerouted, and we're coming down there towards you know, Aditya and then Fallujah. That's that's when we kind of got, I don't know if we got different orders or some, I hear different things from my unit, but we end up turning around, and we're about 20 tractor trailers deep, and we're on a small supply road. So that took good 40 45 minutes and we're already burning daylight so we head back towards the creek then we turn back around probably an hour later and head back towards the original position and, and before we got to the original original turnaround spot is when they had kind of organized a hasty ambush threw a couple landmines down and had a couple you know guys you know attack us once the convoy stopped so we made a mistake and we looked eight up so that presented a target an opportunity for them was this early in the morning? This would have been in the evening, yeah, because we didn't even leave until probably 1 or 2 p.m. And what's the next thing you can remember? I vaguely remember, like, laying on the ground, and there's, you know, mortars kind of exploding around us, and my vest is off, and they're working on me. And then I had a good buddy that, you know, as the explosions were happening near me, he's, like, laying on top of me trying to, like, shield me, which doesn't seem like a lot but it, it meant a lot at that point in time so uh, i remember that pretty well i remember trying to find my weapon system you know i wanted to get back out there and it was almost when i got medevaced out from from camp webster i believe is where i was at there were there were mortars coming in there as well so it was i was being carried by two iraqi police officers to the, the black hawk and it's just mortars boom 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 and then I kind of come to when I see that I'm being carried by two Iraqis. I have no idea what's going on. So I start kicking them, and they dropped me. Then I had a, you know, my first sergeant come over and was like reassured me, but they finally loaded me up and got, you know, flown out. What was the extent of your injuries? Uh, a lot of leg damage. So I messed my ankle up pretty bad. My knee, it blew it out. Then I had some facial lacerations, and I had a big cut out of the side of my head. So. And how long before you made it back to the States? You ended up in Walter Reed. Yeah, so I was in Germany for five days. I was kind of getting stabilized there at Lawnstuhl. Um, then flew over on C-130. It felt like two weeks. I was in that thing. But uh, I was in stateside about six days after the injury, probably. So what was it like at Walter Reed? What was your experience there? Top-notch from the high-level medical perspective. Uh, I mean, the guys that were working on me, they – they work on NFL athletes on their ankles, so they got a lot of experience in those type of injuries and top notch. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about Walter Reed. A lot of things that were in the press about Walter Reed were more due to logistics and, and getting people through the process because I don't think anyone anticipated this many troops coming over being wounded. I mean, they didn't plan it out very well. Uh, so a lot of the cockroach stories and inadequate housing, those that happened after I had left, but basically they had hit full capacity so they had started running off hotels in near the near the post and it's not like it's in a good place so georgia avenue in dc and those you know hotels they had rented out had some some cockroaches and things which is unfortunate but they made it a, it was a pr thing i think uh, i went from sleeping in you know foxholes in the desert to being you know in a, in a hotel room essentially so so your healing, so your healing was physical and emotional. You still had the 660th over in Iraq, and you had mentioned in the questionnaire I sent you that it was it was difficult just knowing they were over there while you were over here. Describe that a little bit. Yeah, that that was probably the, the biggest piece, and still the biggest piece that kind of trips me up. I mean, physically, I 
I was young. Thankfully, I had a couple of pins and, and needles, and I'm, I'm good to go. But just knowing my job was to provide security and the the amount of casualties we had afterwards, it's it's pretty you know it, it's a heavy weight to carry. And and of course, my unit's there saying, hey, you know, nothing you could have done. It's not your fault, which I appreciate. But still, deep down, you, you wish you were there. That you know, what would it have been different? You know, if I was actually there doing my job versus somebody else. And you had mentioned those casualties. Army Reserve Staff Sergeant Richard Morgan, Army Reserve Specialist Alan Nolan, Army Sergeant James Harlan, and Army Staff Sergeant Donald Davis. Did you know those men? Yeah, Nolan was actually in my platoon. That's what we in that Zanesville unit. But all all four we knew. Um, there was actually even a fifth that ended up passing later. Um, Specialist Edwards. But yeah, it was a tight knit community. We didn't, you know, it wasn't one of those things we just. I met him that day, so we knew we drilled together, we you know trained together, and they were uh, they were my extended family. You're listening to marching orders. So after the war, you've come home. You've had a lot of mixed feelings. Like you said, it's good to be stateside. At the same time, you were concerned about your uh, the, everybody else in the 660th who was still over there. But after you're out of Walter Reed, what's it like adjusting to civilian life at this point? Yeah, that was. This is probably one of the biggest challenges I've ever had to, you know, take on, and and hopefully I can say, you know, win. Um, but the transition back was was very difficult. I think that I was so ready to get out of Walter Reed for 14 months, and I, st- I mean, I probably still need more time, honestly, looking back. But my first job out of the military was with Edward Jones Investments, and I got my Series Seven, got my 65, all that fun stuff. Then my job was to knock on doors trying to you know gain prospects and that is probably the worst job you can think of after coming out of a combat zone uh not that i regret taking it i mean i think edward jones was great giving me the opportunity but i was having panic attacks and it was just like it was hindering my health more than it was you know helping me and then you have the motivational aspect is like that happens so many times you just kind of your whole sense of self is almost broken down so you just kind of become depressed and you just lack the skill sets it takes to, you know, do what you're supposed to do to make that job happen. So you had mentioned you went from being a forward looking, responsible adult to um, an individual who was caught up in living in the moment as if tomorrow wasn't guaranteed. Yep, exactly. That's probably the one sentence that could define that period. I mean, I think that I mean, I joined the military for a certain reason. I, everything I, I did prior to that moment was to have a better tomorrow. And then you have an incident where it's like, shit, excuse my French, but tomorrow might not come you know we have to live in the moment we you know can't defer all the gratitude we have to you know, just live in the moment so i took that that mentality to an extreme you know I, I put myself in a position where i mean if i didn't have a strong support system i could be on the streets you know i, I racked up so much in credit card debt didn't save didn't do the things i needed to do to be a responsible citizen and it's just didn't care about tomorrow it was a day by day by day basis and it's just i did it to the extreme it wasn't healthy so what turned it around for you? Just you have that moment of reckoning, and it's like you look at yourself in the mirror, and it's like, what am I doing? This is not you. And it's so then you take the approach. You know, I had this period of reflection. I was like, okay, so I, I know I can't just turn this off and tomorrow be back to normal. You got to take the appropriate baby steps every day. You know, every day you got to get better physically, mentally, emotionally, somehow get better. And I took that approach, and it's exponential. It builds upon itself. So you keep getting better day in, day out. And, and you'll get, you get to where you want to go. What advice would you give to a, uh, a military person who now is trying to adjust to civilian life, who really may be struggling? We've all heard of the, the 22 a day who mm-hmm. commit suicide. 
what advice would you give to those who are struggling? You know, reach out. It's you're not alone in this in this fight. We've all been there. We're all family. We're here to look out after you. It's you know, the military trains you to suck it up, drive on, don't ever, you know, admit you have a problem or, you know, an illness or anything, but this is different. You gotta I mean if you're having those issues, you know, we're here to help. And and we're one big family and and there's infrastructure, there's you know, support system in place to help. I mean, it's just you gotta have faith, you know, find out what your purpose is in life. And that's a big thing too. You have this huge role in the military, you're you know, you're whatever we're doing in the military, you either, you know, defending freedoms, etc. But when you come home, you don't have a purpose. It's like, what now? And that eats away at people. So I, I just encourage, you know, get involved in something. Find a way, something's got to motivate you that will encourage you to do the best you can. And just find that and keep that in front of mind. And give a little plug for yourself, too. You are a financial advisor. How can people get a hold of you? Yeah, well, great question. Uh, you can always reach me at my office. It's a 614-784-6000. It's in Dublin, Ohio. And the name of the firm is Ascend Advisory. We're an independent firm, which is, is great for the client. We don't have a bank or we don't have a wirehouse that influences what we offer to our clients. So you can be assured that you know, you're working with the fiduciary and getting the best advice possible. Uh, LinkedIn, social media. I'm big out there. You can always you know, reach me out there as well. You're a big Ohio State fan, I should point out. Buckeyes all day. OH. <laughs> I O. U.S. Army Specialist Jason Goldsmith, first, thank you for your service and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We want to hear from you, our listeners. Tell us what you think of marching orders and help us find brave men and women who have served and who have a story to tell. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. We're all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and it's all at This Week News. That's at This Week News. And this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and will be on our website at thisweeknews.com. I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.